Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 16? As we come to Genesis 16, Abram has been living in the land of Canaan for 10 years. At this point, he is 85 years old, and his wife Sarah is 75 years old. Now, the promise that God gave to Abram that he was going to have a son is about 10 years old. So the whole time he's been in, in Canaan, God had made that promise to him. And, you know, between God's promises and the fulfillment of those promises, there's a time of waiting and trusting. That's hard, okay? It's hard because we know what God has promised us. Has God ever spoken to you about something? I mean, really, and you know in your heart it was the Lord. But time is going on, and you're waiting, and nothing is happening. Yeah, don't you know the devil's right there, all right? The devil's right there to attack in fact, I think that's when he attacks the most. And the way he attacks is to get us to doubt that God will keep his promise or that God maybe can keep his promise or, as we're going to see tonight, that God maybe needs our help in fulfilling his promise. And so we look at verse 1. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. Now, when we studied chapter 12, we saw how that at one point, they're in Canaan now, God called them to Canaan, Abram and his family, and at one point a famine broke out in the land of Canaan. Well, Abram had a lot of people that were depending on him. I mean, as we said, over a thousand people plus livestock, uh, he has a lapse of faith. He panics, he grabs everybody and runs down to Egypt because there's always food down there, it's a very fertile area. So he's, you know, he's kind of walked off the path of obedience for a while. Well, eventually he gets his life right with God and returns. But while he's down there, Pharaoh takes a look at Sarah and says, wow, this is a beautiful woman. And, and Abram had told his wife to say to anyone who asked her, you're my sister. So Pharaoh was very nice to Abram, <laughs> thinking that he was Sarah's brother, and uh, began to lavish upon Abram and uh, uh, those with him gifts. He gives to Sarah uh, a handmaiden named Hagar, young slave girl, to attend her needs, thinking that, you know, she's going to eventually be his wife. Well, when he finds out that uh, Sarah is actually married to Abram, uh, Pharaoh is very upset and says, look, just get out of here. Okay, don't even give anything back. Take it all, just leave. All right. So they leave Egypt, go back to Canaan, but this time they have this young handmaiden that belongs to Sarah now, uh, named Hagar. Now, little did Abram and Sarah realize at that time how this young woman was going to impact their lives and the lives of their descendants. In fact, an impact that is still being felt by the Jewish people to this day, 4,000 years later. And we're going to see how that works tonight. So once again, verse 1, now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, see now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. A few things we need to understand here. First of all, what seems incredibly uh, immoral to us living in Western culture, it was perfectly acceptable to them in Eastern culture back then. In fact, ancient tablets found in the area of Mesopotamia, that was the area that uh, Sarai and Abram were originally from. They found these uh, ancient tablets which state that if a wife is barren, her handmaiden could become the husband's concubine and act as a surrogate to raise up children that would legally be the children 
of the barren wife and her husband, not the husband and the surrogate or the concubine, but the legal children of the barren wife and her husband. And although this must have been an extremely difficult and unnatural thing for a wife to give her her handmaiden to her husband, that he would raise up children through her, it was an act of desperation. It just goes to show you how uh, how tragic it was for a woman to be barren back then. So tragic that, uh, that Sarah acts uh, in a uh, very desperate way and gives uh, Hagar to Abram to raise up children through her. Uh, in fact, it was so abhorrent back then for a woman to be barren that uh, many believed it was a judgment of God upon a woman's life. And you know what, guys? That seems to be implied in Sarah's statement to Abram when she says, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. The Hebrew word for restrained means to make barren or to close. And so Sarai is telling Abram that the Lord had purposely made her barren by closing her womb. And I think this is at the heart of why Sarah did this. Uh, You see, Sarah knew the promise that God had given to Abram. She knew that God had promised him, him, that he would be the father of a great multitude. He had made that promise to him, not necessarily to him and her. And so the last 10 years has passed now, and Sarah obviously has come to believe that she's the problem. She's the problem with God's promise being fulfilled through Abram. And so in an effort to help God out, be very careful whenever you try to help God, in an effort to help God out with his own promise, she allowed her husband to take her handmaiden, Hagar, to raise up children, which again, culturally, was a legitimate and even a legal thing Uh, to do to solve this problem but uh, you know just because it was legal doesn't mean it was right something we have to understand in a fallen culture sometimes things are made legal that are not necessarily right especially in the eyes of God but Sarah seems to have adopted the old proverb unbiblical proverb maybe she started with her I don't know but God helps those who help themselves now before I got saved I had that quoted me numerous times by people and I thought that was in the Bible until I read the Bible and realized no uh, there's, you know, maybe First Thessalonians or something like that, but I don't, you know, I, I haven't seen it in my Bible, so. And this was a total work of the flesh, okay? I mean, uh, God was not in this. God wasn't in this. In fact, God never calls Hagar Abraham's wife. He simply calls her Sarah's maid. God doesn't even recognize this union. Total work of the flesh. So again, verse 2, So Sarai said to Abram, See, now the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Um, Sarah is acting in the flesh, but Abram's no better. Okay, He comes across here as rather weak and passive in this situation. Instead of acting like a spiritual leader and saying to, to Sarai, Look, we're not doing that. Okay, We're not going to do it. God made me a promise 10 years ago, and you, that he was going to give us a son. Now, look, we're not going to help him out. He doesn't need our help. Let's pray. Let's worship. Let's trust that God is going to fulfill his promise without us getting our hands in there and trying to help him. That's what he should have said. Unfortunately, Abram didn't do that. He listened to his wife and got himself into some hot water. It's kind of reminiscent of another man, Adam, who listened to his wife about 2,000 years earlier, uh, got himself into some hot water uh, also. 
Uh, in fact, after he ate the forbidden fruit, which Eve gave to him, which God had forbidden, uh, God said, uh, because you heeded the voice of your wife and uh, have eaten what I commanded you not to eat of, uh, cursed shall be the ground for your sake, and so on. So the curse came. Now, look at guys. Before you take away from this that God is telling you, don't ever listen to your wife if you want to stay out of trouble. Genesis 21, verse 12, God says to Abram to listen to the voice of his wife. Listen to your wife on this. So as we study this, we can see sometimes we men are to listen to our wives. Sometimes we are not to listen to our wives. You say, but yeah, when should I and when should I not? You need to work that out between you and God with fear and trembling, okay? I'm not going there. Pray a lot. Pray a lot. But I'll have to let you just take that up with God, okay? All right, verse 3. When Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. After Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. And so he went into Hagar, and she conceived... And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. At this point, it becomes obvious that Sarai is the problem with regard to fertility. She kind of felt that way, but she wasn't sure. And I know that right here now, this confirms her greatest fears that she was the infertile one. Abram was able to have, to have Hagar conceive right away. So obviously, in, in Sarah's mind, she now believes that She's been the problem. She's been infertile. And in that culture, again, that was a big tragedy, even to the point where women thought God was judging them by making them barren. She even says it. Remember, she says, you know, God has made me barren. Well, when she said that, I don't know if she really knew it 100%, but now she does. So now she's thinking, I think, that, you know, God has cursed her in some way. And whenever you feel God has cursed you, in other words, God's against you, you're not going to draw close to him. He's going to become your adversary, right? The problem with that is God was not cursing Sarah. He was preparing her. He was preparing her. But from an outside perspective, when God is working to prepare us for a greater work, Jesus called it pruning. John 15. As the Father is pruning our lives, he's taking things away. A person from the outside looking in or just a casual observer would look at our lives that were being pruned and and, and they don't know we're being pruned. They just see God removing things, God tearing things down. God, And it looks like to a lot of people we're being judged by God, that God is judging us, that maybe God's hand is against us. Of course, the devil's right there to tell us God's against you. See, you've let him down. He's removing your ministry. He's taking all this stuff away from you. And that causes me to be somewhat resentful towards the Lord. I begin to think of him as an adversary. I begin to move away from him. But we know... That when the Father prunes us, it's never to curse us or to show he's done with us. It's always to prepare us for greater fruitfulness. That's what was going on in Sarah's life and Abram. But Sarah was being pruned. Now, once Hagar conceived, in Hagar's mind, feeding into the cultural mindset, um, she began to look down on Sarai. In that culture, you were barren Yes, uh, God was uh, possibly cursing you, but you were defective. You were not a, a real woman. And so it was a, a real stigma attached to this. And once Hagar got pregnant, she began to look down on Sarai. It probably wasn't that Hagar said anything to Sarai directly. 
It was uh, the way she looked at her. Her eyes said it all. Have you ever been on the receiving end of uh, dirty or condescending looks? Nobody has told you what the problem is, but every time they look at you, you can see it in their eyes. There's something wrong. They're looking down on you. They're, it's a condescending look, a disgusted look. I'd rather have a person come to me and just get it out on the table. If you're upset with me, just tell me so we can work through it. But when I'm dealing with people who are giving me dirty looks and I know something's bothering them, but they don't come to me, that's hard to deal with. Now, this caused an interesting reaction from Sarai towards Abram. Verse 5, And Sarai said to Abram, My wrong be upon you. That's typical. I gave my maid into your embrace. When she saw she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between you and me. Now, in the face of it, this seems pretty unfair. Blaming Abram for a sin that Sarah had committed. What was that? Not trusting God to fulfill his promise. You know, not really thinking God was able to, to come through on what he had promised. She had kind of pushed Abram into this whole deal. Of course, he went along with it, but she was the one motivating him to do this. And then when it went south, she's upset with her husband. Now, let me say this. This is kind of a common thing uh, for us to do. Whenever we take a situation into our own hands, okay, as Christians, we're supposed to wait for God. We're supposed to trust Him to work things out. But it's hard. Sometimes we just get impatient. And we won't go ahead, and sometimes we take matters into our own hands. And when it blows up in our face, often we are resentful towards God and those around us for some reason. We just take it out on everybody. It's not my fault. It's all your fault. Sarah kind of did that, all right? She, she kind of blamed, uh, no doubt had resentment in her heart towards the Lord because he had made her barren. Why, she didn't know, but he was cursing her in some way. And then, of course, Abram, who listens to her, does what she wants. Whole thing, you know, Hagar gets pregnant. Hagar looks down on Sarah now, and she's upset with her, upset with Abram. Look, she needed to take responsibility for her actions, as we do. If we do something wrong, we need to take responsibility for it, not scapegoat others. You know, we need to fess up. Sarah should have come to the Lord and said, Lord, look, I, I blew it. Okay, I blew it. I, I should have trusted you. I, I went ahead and did what I thought was right, and now this is what's happened. And Lord, I'm sorry. Forgive me. But she didn't do that. She just started blaming everybody. And, um, of course, God didn't need her help. It reminds me of something the Scottish novelist George MacDonald said uh, when he said, and whatever man does without God, he must fail miserably or succeed more miserably. So, you know what? If you're doing something that God doesn't want you to do, pray that you fail. Because if you succeed, it's even worse. Okay? That's the problem. Sometimes people succeed in their sinful actions and they assume God is blessing them. That's how warp our thinking can get. But if you succeed in something God has told you not to do, you are in a very miserable place. Because eventually it's going to blow up. But right now, it looks like, whoa, God is with this. I have known more than a few women over my 35 years in ministry who entered into marriage to unbelievers with that mindset, and they have paid the price for years, some of them. It's not worth it. But listen to me. There is a sense in which Sarai was right. When she said to Abram, this is your fault, okay? May God judge between you and me. What is she saying? She's basically saying, you know, the Lord judge which one of us is more guilty in this situation. What is she saying? Well, I, I believe in some ways she was right. Look, Abram was the spiritual leader of his home. It was his responsibility to make godly decisions. 
that would lead his family in the right path, the path of obedience towards God. I can't say that Sarah was as innocent. Of course, I don't think she's saying that. She's just saying, look, basically, you know, why'd you listen to me? This is your fault. What are you doing listening? We can't win, guys. Okay? The problem with women is they speak in code. And it takes most of our married lives to figure out the code. When they tell us don't do something, now, does she mean I'm supposed to do that? Don't make a big fuss for our anniversary. Wow, that's a big... Does she really mean that? Or should I make a big fuss? You know? Again, fear and trembling. You've got to work it out between you and the Lord. So there's a code involved here. And Abraham didn't crack the code. She said, do this. He did it. She said, no, you were wrong. You should not have done it. Oh, all right. Look, one author put it this way. He said, logically, Sarai was wrong to place all the blame on Abram. After all, it was her idea. But actually, she was right. He was the patriarch. He was the head of the house. God had spoken to him, not to her. He should never have allowed the situation. Abram was truly responsible for the wrong, the Hebrew's violence, that Sarai was now suffering. Well, verse 6. So Abram said to Sarai, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, with Hagar, she fled from her presence. Now, once again, Abram demonstrates, in my mind, a lack of spiritual maturity, not to mention not to mention compassion for Hagar, I mean, who was not completely innocent in all of this. I mean, you know, she looked down on Sarai. Sarai was her mistress, her master. Um, she began to look down on her, and it was all over her face. Her eyes told the story. So, you know, the stuff that was coming back on her now, she had brought on herself by the way she had treated Sarai. But again, Abraham was the patriarch, okay? He was the believer, all right? At this point, Hagar is not a believer, but Abram was a believer. And yet he isn't acting very spiritual at all. He treats Hagar, the woman who is now carrying his son, by the way, as some kind of disposable commodity, instead of, like his concubine, in a human being. Look, let me put this in a little better perspective, okay? I didn't know this today until I was studying. And I was really prepared to go off on Abram uh, because of this. Uh, not that he's innocent, okay? But from what I understand now, in the Code of Hammurabi, which was found in the area of Mesopotamia, where, uh, where Abram and Sarai were originally from, law number 146 states that if a concubine claims equality with her mistress because she has born children, her mistress may demote her to her former status. And, you know, maybe that's at the heart of what's going on here. I don't know. Maybe when Hagar looked down on Sarai, Sarai went to Abram and said, Look, we have a law in these parts, okay? That if a concubine bears children through a husband of another woman and looks down on her, then she, legally, we can demote her back to her, you know, slave status. And it could be that Abram just said, Look, do what, do what you want with her. She's yours. Look, look at what he says. He says, Indeed, your mate. Not my concubine, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. Maybe that's what's going on here, I don't know. But I don't think even if that's what's going on, I don't think it absolves Abram of wrongdoing. Look, the world's standards are not the child of God's standards. What the world allows and accepts, we don't get to live that way, 
right? God holds us to a higher standard, his standard of right and wrong. J. Vernon McGee said, after how beautiful and powerful chapter 15 was, he said he wished chapter 16 wasn't here. And I understand why. It's because Abram doesn't come across as a spiritual man in this chapter, but rather an insensitive, worldly man with really no backbone. He comes across very wishy-washy. Sometimes Abram shines, sometimes he doesn't. He was a, was a man like us. He was a, a, a human being. And all of us in our journey with God, sometimes we're going to shine, sometimes we're not. You know, and the Bible is God painting his servants warts and all. I mean, you know, uh, we want to put these people on pedestals, but God does not allow us to do that because he shows us all the faults, all the flaws, okay? Now, Abram did grow. He was growing. We're going to see him reach an apex in faith in chapter 22. But along the way, as we walk with God, we're going to have moments where our faith is going to shine. Like Peter, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then times we're going to crash and burn. Lord, this is never going to happen to you. You will never go to the cross. Get behind me, Satan. Okay? Sometimes, you know, we just have to be careful. We have to just keep drawing close to the Lord. And so in verse 6, he says, look, she's your maid. Do with her as you please. Sarah dealt harshly with Hagar. She fled from her presence. Verse 7. Now the angel of the Lord found her, found Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to shore. This is the first time the phrase angel of God or angel of the Lord is found in Scripture. We find that phrase used over and over again. Now listen to me. The word angel simply means messenger messenger sometimes it's just referring to an angel which is a supernatural messenger of god but other times it refers the word angel like angel of the lord refers to and like it does here refers to an old testament pre-incarnate appearance of jesus christ called a theophany a theophany how do we know this was actually jesus in a pre-incarnate experience well because hagar calls this angel god and the messenger, or the angel, doesn't correct her. So this is Jesus. And of course, the Bible says in the book of John that no man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, has, has uh, manifested him. So all the Old Testament appearances where God uh, manifested himself to people, and there's numerous. We're going to see it with Jacob in chapter 32, uh, in uh, the book of uh, Judges, we see it. Uh, the Lord manifests himself to Manoah uh, and his wife, uh, who actually at one point bore Samson, and so on. So we know that the angel of the Lord makes numerous appearances throughout the Old Testament. And uh, when the context shows that the person recognizes this entity to be God and calls him such, and the entity doesn't correct the person, but it receives the worship and, and all, that's the Lord the Lord Jesus Christ in a pre-incarnate experience. If he says, take off your shoes, you're standing on holy ground like you did to Joshua, that's the Lord. Because angels don't say things like that. Angels never receive worship. John tried to worship an angel a couple of times in the book of Revelation when the angel showed him all these things and John was overwhelmed, falls at his feet, begins to worship. The angel, the angel no, 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 don't do that. I'm your fellow servant. You worship God. So a, a, a good angel, a good angel, one of God's guys, uh, will never receive worship and will never allow them to be called God. Okay, so this is the Lord Jesus Christ who found her, right? 
who found her, right? Verse 7, the angel of the Lord, or Jesus Christ, found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. Notice, guys, that he found her. She didn't find him, okay? Jesus is the good shepherd who goes out looking for lost sheep. He, go, he goes out looking for us because we're lost, okay? And we get saved. Often we say, well, I found God. You didn't find God. God found you. God wasn't lost. You were, okay? I mean, we know what we mean, but I just have to correct that, okay? Because uh, God isn't lost. God is looking for us. Now, when he finds us, when he begins to bring conviction to our hearts and we respond, we think it was our idea, okay? Okay, I, you know, I just one day decided I needed God in my life, so I went looking for God and found him. No, it was Jesus calling to you. And as he was calling to you, you didn't even realize, but the conviction started. Your eyes began to open, and you eventually received him as Lord and Savior because he was looking for you. But notice the picture the Holy Spirit is painting for us here. Here we see a broken, unloved Egyptian slave girl, a nobody on the run from an abusive situation, sitting by a well in the wilderness on her way to Shur. Now, Shur is the name of the desert in northwestern Sinai uh, next to Egypt. So she's on her way home. She's from Egypt. She's going back to her people. Who are her people? They were the descendants of Ham. Remember now, that was the cursed son of Noah. Ham, Canaan, Canaan was uh, Ham's son. Uh, they were cursed by uh, Noah. We don't know why. Maybe because uh, Ham uh, dis disrespected his father Noah or something. Maybe he did some kind of a homosexual act on his father. We don't know. But when Noah woke up because he was uh, drunk and in his tent uh, naked, uh, and uh, when he woke up, knowing what Ham had done to him, he curses Ham's line. And so this was a cursed line, is my point. Egypt is the type of the world. So here you have a, a young woman who was taken out of Egypt, uh, brought into the family of God, in a sense, because Abram was a member of the Shemites, and they were the Messianic line. But she's abused. She's, you know, been treated harshly. And so she's on her way back to Egypt. In fact, she's almost there when the Lord Jesus Christ meets her. Verse 8, and he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? Now, I don't believe the Lord is simply asking Hagar a question to get some basic information. He knew where she was from and he knew she was on her way back to Egypt. But this is one of those probing questions that the Lord will ask us from time to time, especially when our lives are have gotten off the right path. And he'll basically speak to our hearts and say, you know, where have you come from? And where do you want to end up in life? I really think that's the question he's asking Hagar. It's just like the Lord to make a statement like this, and you can take it very superficially and go, oh, he just wanted to know where she was, where she was from and where she was going. He knew that. This was one of those questions. See, this was a pivotal moment in Hagar's life, as we're going to see. Uh, the Lord uses this to turn her around and set her back to where she was going to get the spiritual nourishment and the spiritual accountability that she needed. She wasn't going to get in Egypt. And so the Lord basically says, to her, where, where have you come from? Have you come so far to only go back to where you began? Where do you want to end up in your life? You know, Israel found themselves in this place. After God had delivered them from Egypt, he brought them into the wilderness. Now, he wasn't intending for them to stay in the wilderness 
for too long, maybe about a year, enough time to build the tabernacle and get the priesthood going and so on. And then he wanted to bring them right into the promised land. But of course, as he brought them to the border of the promised land and uh, Moses sent in the 12 spies, two of them, Joshua and Caleb, they went in to spy out the land. And when they did, they found it was a, an exceedingly um, fertile land. Okay, I mean, they brought back a, uh, a cluster of grapes the size, I don't know, of, of cantaloupe size, but, but it was fantastic. So God had told them the truth. This was a land flowing with milk and honey. The problem was there were little, literal giants that were in this land. I mean, the uh, descendants of, uh, of Anak. Pray his engine blows up right now, will you? But um, there were giants in the land, literal giants. And so the ten spies see, saw the size of the enemy, and their hearts fainted. They came back, gave a report to the people. Yeah, it's a good land, but there are giants there. We can't take this land. Joshua and Caleb said, well, sure, they're big. Our God's bigger. Let's go take it. He's given it to us. But the people listened to the ten evil spies, rejected the counsel of Joshua and Caleb. And so God said, well, because you have doubted me, because you have not trusted me, now you're going to spend one year in the wilderness for every day the spies were in the land. 38 days in the land, 38 years in the wilderness. And while they were in the wilderness, they grew impatient. And they began to murmur and complain. At one point, God sent some fiery serpents in among them, and began to, they began to bite the people and so on. You remember that story. And they cried out to Moses, who prayed to the Lord on their behalf. And um, God says, Take a, make a brass serpent, put it on a pole, erect it in the center of the camp. Whoever is bitten by one of the snakes, look upon the brass serpent on the pole, and you'll be healed. But the idea is that sometimes as God leads us out of the world, he wants to bring us right into the promise and the life of the Spirit. All right? That's his goal. But we often linger in the wilderness because we don't trust him. We don't trust him. We read his word. We have his promises. But we often don't trust he's going to come through for us. Yeah, they're for everybody else. But I just can't believe God's going to bless me this way. Or he's going to do for me. And I tell you, there's a lot of Christians I, I believe the Lord is saying this to. Look, you know where you've come from. You've come from the world. Where do you want to end up? You want to go back to the world? Is that where you want to end up? Because that's what Israel wanted to do. They wanted to go back to the leeks, the, the onions, the garlic of Egypt. And I think the Lord is saying to a lot of Christians, look, don't you remember where you came from? You really want to go back to that life? Was that life so great that you think that by going back to it, you're going to have any kind of fulfillment? Remember what the Lord said to his disciples after many of them walked away from him and followed him no more because he was saying some pretty radical things? You know, you got to eat my body and drink my blood to be one with me. He wasn't speaking literally, but they interpreted it that way. A lot of them left, and he turns to the 12 and says, Are you also going to go? And what did Peter say? Where else can we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. Look, sometimes it's not easy to walk with the Lord. But honestly, guys, there's nothing in the world I want to go back to. So there's no turning back. I don't care how hard it gets. I can't go back. So I don't have any other option but to go forward. So the Lord says to her, where, where are you from and where are you going? She said, verse 8, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Now, guys, look, running away from our problems is never the answer. Although we'd like to do that sometimes. David wanted to do that. You can read Psalm 55 tomorrow. 
David says, oh, I wish I had wings like a bird that I can fly away and be at peace. You know, I'm tired of people attacking me and all this. I just wish I could just run away, fly away, you know. Sometimes we all wish we could do that. But guys, running away from a problem is never God's will. You have to face it and with his strength work through it. And that's what the Lord is saying here to Hagar. He said in verse 9, The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Then the angel of the Lord Jesus said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. Ishmael means God hears. God hears. Verse 12, And he shall be a wild man, and his hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. The Lord promised or prophesied that Ishmael would be a wild man. Actually, the Hebrew is a wild donkey of a man. And this was picking up on something they knew pretty well. In the desert there, there were these wild donkeys. They were more like horses, actually. And um, they were amazing in that they could survive in the desert. But they were very territorial, very honorary, couldn't get along with any other creature, not even their own kind. So they were loners, okay, out in the wilderness, surviving, but all by themselves. And the Lord is saying, look, Ishmael is going to be, and his descendants are going to be of that sort. They're going to be very territorial. They're going to be survivors, but uh, their hand shall be against every man. Every man's hand shall be against them. Now, Ishmael's descendants became the Arabs, the Arabs. And boy, we can see today how this prophecy has come through. How many of the Arabs really have been loners, territorial? Um, the conflict that we see to this day uh, with the descendants of Ishmael that have brought into the world, just the conflict everywhere is just, it's breathtaking. And it goes on to say, and he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. The, new, the NIV translates this, and he will live in hostility towards all his brethren. Look, it isn't fair to apply these traits to every descendant of Ishmael. That's not fair. But the centuries-long conflicts between the Jews and Arabs is a reality that can't be ignored. I mean, it's obvious that what God prophesied is what we're seeing in our day. In fact, one commentator made this observation. He said, Little did Abram and Sarah imagine that their shortcut would originate a conflict that would run for millennia and that oceans of blood will be, would be spilt. Abram, the father of the faithful, had begotten a wild man instead of a child of grace. How tragic was Abram's expediency, end quote. Look, guys, you can't imagine the problems you can get into when you begin to try to help God out, especially when you take things into your own hands and begin to do things that, you know, are not really right, but I've got to do it this way. God understands. I'm desperate. That's the problem. You get desperate, you want to take things into your own hands. That's, that's when things begin to go wrong. The Bible says, he who believes shall not make what? Haste. You, you know, God has got a time. For everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. You wait on the timing of God. If God has promised you something, you trust him. You just wait. You don't try to take it into your own hands and so on. Verse 13, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. So, Hagar gives 
the Lord a name, and the place a name. She said, You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. I mean, this just blew Hagar's mind. That God saw her, he knew her, and he took the time to reveal himself to her. I mean, she's amazed that God saw her predicament and cared about her. In fact, that's what she's really saying here. She, she isn't really just saying, God sees me. Well, that's obvious. What she's saying is, God sees me in the sense of caring about me. That's the idea here from the Hebrew. That she's not just acknowledging God saw her. God sees everybody. His eyes go to and fro about the face of the whole earth. What she's acknowledging is that God, she's blown away, that God, the God of the universe, knows me. And his eyes are upon me in the sense he cares about me. And has revealed himself to me to help me. I mean, a broken, abused, unloved slave girl. Think about that. And where did the Lord reveal himself to her? Verse 7. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. Verse 14. Therefore the well, it was a spring of water into a well. Therefore the well was called Bir Laharoi. She names it Bir Laharoi. And it says, observe it is between Kadesh and Bered. The Lord meets her by a well. She was broken. She was an outcast. And that's where the Lord met her. It reminds me of another woman, unloved and rejected by her people, that Jesus met by a well in John chapter 4. She came out to this well, a woman of Samaria from the city of Sychar, if you know anything about the Samaritans, they were hated by the Jewish people because about 750 years prior to this, John 4, um, the Assyrians came and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And what they did was they took most of the people with them. I think we just talked about this a couple weeks ago. But they took most of the people with them. They only left the sickly, the infirm, the handicapped, and so on, elderly and then they brought people from all the, over the Assyrian Empire and they repopulated the northern kingdom with these people. Well, these Gentile pagans uh, intermarried with these Jewish people and their offspring were half Jew, half Gentile, called the Samaritans or they, you know, they were half-breeds. They were looked down upon. In Jesus' day, nobody would even walk, a rabbi would never walk through Samaria. The dust was considered defiled. If they had to go north to Galilee, instead of going through Samaria, they would go east, cross over the Jordan River, go up north through Perea, and then when they were adjacent to Cana, to um, the upper area, okay, um, Galilee, I should say, they would cross over to the west, uh, bypassing Samaria altogether. Well, Jesus goes right up into Samaria because he had an appointment from the foundation of the world the Father had given to him to meet with this woman by this well at a certain time, what time? Noon. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that she was an outcast, number one. Women didn't get, draw water at noon. It's too hot. Uh, they drew water early in the morning or late at night. And they would all come out together, the women, because it was kind of a social activity, too. You get your water, you talk, socialized. Here was a woman that was coming out to get water at noon all by herself. We learn later that she had been married and divorced five times and was not living with a guy. So probably she was uh, shunned by the other women in town because... She had a reputation for being, you know, breaking up families, breaking up marriages, stealing husbands. 
Well, Jesus knew she was thirsty, not just physically, but spiritually. And so he engages her in a conversation. First of all, says, you know, um, can you give me a drink? Now, she's amazed because she knows he's from uh, Israel. She knows that he's a rabbi because he's wearing the robe of a rabbi. It's got a, uh, a hem on the bottom that lets everyone know he's a rabbi. So she says, she's amazed. She says, look, you know, you rabbis, you Jews have no dealings with us Samaritans. That you're asking me for a drink. And he says, look, if you knew who it was that was asking you for a drink, you would ask him for a drink, and he would give to you living water. Now, she thinks he's talking physically. and says, well, this well is deep, and you have nothing to draw with. Where are you going to get that living water? And he basically goes on to tell her, no, look, I'm the living water. I know what's going on in your life. Okay, again, God sees. God knows, right? I know what's going on. I know you've been married five times, divorced five times, now now living with a man. Because you're trying to fill a thirst inside with physical relationships when really the relationship that you really need is a relationship with me, God Almighty. And so he brings her to himself. She gets saved, okay? And what does she do? First thing she does is what? She puts down her what? Her water pitcher. She doesn't need it. She's satisfied now, runs into town, and begins to share the Lord with all the people in town. Look, the Lord knows what we're going through. The Lord knows those who are unloved, who are broken, who are hurting, who are rejected, ostracized, and the Lord is always wanting to reach out to them. His ears are always attentive. And look at guys, sometimes we find ourselves in a wilderness uh, in our lives. We're going through a dry period. It's difficult. We don't really hear God's voice anymore. We're, you know, you, we've all been there. But know this, there is a well. There is always a well we can drink from to revive our weary souls. It is Jesus. He is our beer laharoi, the well of the one who lives and sees me. Well of the one who lives and sees me. What did Jesus say to the woman by the well of Sychar? He said, you know, you've come to this well to draw water from, but I'm the well that you might draw living water from. Jesus Christ is our well. And I just love it how the Holy Spirit goes out out of his way to make a point that God sees abused women. He sees and he cares. And the Lord once again looks for those who are broken, abandoned, unloved. And he will come to them and reveal himself to them. To what? For what reason? To redirect their lives. Here, Hagar was going back to Egypt and the Lord stopped her and redirected her. Because he wanted her to come to a good destination. Is this where you want to end up in Egypt where you started? No, God comes to us, especially as we've kind of gotten off the right path. Solomon, for years, walked away from God, got into all kinds of things trying to fill the void of the emptiness in his own life. You can read the book of Ecclesiastes. It just goes from one thing to the other. He tried to do to fill his lo- the emptiness in his life. At the end of his life, he realizes none of that has satisfied him. So he comes back to the Lord, the very place he started, because he had gone into the world for so many years. He said, look, I made a big mistake. My father told me the day he coronated me as king of Israel. He said, Solomon, if you will seek the Lord with all your heart, he'll be found by you. If you forsake him, he'll forsake you. If you walk away from him, he'll walk away from you. So serve him with a loyal heart and a willing mind, Solomon. Solomon started out doing that. But like so many, they don't maintain their walk with God. They don't really put the effort in. So they begin to drift. And as they drift away from God, they want to fill the emptiness with something so they go back into the world. It's a common thing. You will never 
slide backward if you keep walking forward. The best defense is a good, strong offense. Stay in the word. Stay in fellowship. Maintain your prayer life. Keep walking towards the Lord, and believe me, he will be found by you every day, and he will keep you from sliding backward. The Lord wants to redirect all of us if we strayed back into the path of obedience and surrender. Listen to me. In this world, when something is broken, it isn't worth anything. In God's kingdom, when someone is broken, that's when they really take on value. Because now he can use them. Now he can use them. God often waits until we are broken. He did that with Peter. Peter said, Lord, I'll never deny you. You could depend on me. The Lord Lord knew that wasn't going to happen. And he had to allow Peter to make this promise that Jesus knew was sincere, but a promise based on Peter's strength. And we can't promise God things based on our strength. We have to live for him based on his strength. And so Peter blew it. Denied the Lord three times. Did the very thing Jesus told him he was going to do, but Peter absolutely said he would never do. And as Peter fell pretty hard and was broken, Jesus restored him and said, now I can use you. Now I can use you, Peter. you got a good heart. You just have to stop putting all your confidence in your own strength. Paul would put it this way years later. When I am weak, then I'm strong. When I don't rely on my own strength but depend on his strength, then I'm really strong. Look, the Lord knows you. He knows me. He knows what we're going through. And for those that don't know Jesus, he is offering them a good destination, just like he was offering Hagar. He is saying to them, where do you want to end up in life? Where'd you come from? Well, I had nothing. I really had to fight and work hard, and I built this business up. So where do you want to end with this? Americans, where do you want this to end? I don't know, but I just want to keep going and keep making more money and being successful. And then what? When you die, what's going to happen then? I know where you've come from, but where do you want to end up? So many people are are running 100 miles an hour in one direction. They don't really even know where they're going. They're just driven. If you were to ask them, well, where do you want to end up with your life? They don't know. I want to be famous. I want to be wealthy. I want to be success in business. And then what? When you die, what's going to happen then? Look, I believe Hagar got saved. I believe she came to believe in the God of Abram. I believe we're going to see Hagar in heaven someday. That's my conviction. I could be wrong. But verse 15, so Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So obviously Hagar goes back. Uh, She apologizes to Sarai. And then she tells Abram and Sarai that God revealed himself to her told her that she was going to have a son and that they were to name, she was to name him Ishmael. Well, obviously, Abram believes her because he goes ahead and names this son Ishmael. doesn't say Sarah named him, it says Abram did. And no doubt because Abram believed that Hagar had seen the Lord, that the Lord had spoken to her and told her that she would have a son and he was, they were to name him Ishmael, which they did. Now, the chapter ends by telling us that Abram was now 86 years old. Do you realize another 13 years would pass before God actually fulfilled his promise to 
Abram and Sarah to give them a son, Isaac. Thirteen more years. Well, what was God waiting for? For their strength to be completely gone. It's obviously not gone yet, because Abram fathers a child through Hagar. So he's still virile enough to have kids. So guys, they got to wait a little, a little more time. So like, 13 more years passes. Abram's 99. Sarah's what? She's 89. When Isaac is finally born. Again, between God's promise and the fulfillment of that promise is a time of waiting. Not easy. Just keep trusting God. Don't get, get off and trying to help God. Just trust Him. Praise Him. Realize that the bigger the work God wants to accomplish, the longer He takes to prepare His instruments. The greater the work, the longer God... He's never in a hurry, by the way. Somebody has said, the wheels of God grind slow, but they grind exceedingly fine. And that's the idea. Sometimes God has to grind us down, break us, before we're really ready to be used by Him. So next week, God willing, we'll tackle chapter 17 and things start getting really interesting now okay we'll see how that works next time father lord we thank you for this chapter and how you have taught us there is nobody beyond your love your grace your reach i mean here we have a young slave girl from a cursed people living in a cursed land the land of egypt the type of the world She's a nobody. She's abandoned. She's abused. She's an outcast. She's waiting to die. She was with child. She never would have made it back to Egypt without dying in the wilderness. But you met her there. You reached out to her. You opened her eyes. She came to know you as the God who sees, the God who cares about someone even as lowly as me. And Lord, if you cared about a lowly, unsaved slave girl how much do you care about your children who know you give us grace lord never to buy into the lies of the enemy who tells us that you've abandoned us when we know that you have said in your word lord that you will never leave us nor forsake us sometimes we feel like you're not there you're always there sometimes we feel like you're not listening to our prayers nothing is happening that's what Habakkuk thought, God, I pray and I pray and I pray, but you don't do anything. And what did you say to him, Lord? You said, I'm doing a work. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean I'm not working. It's such a great work, your ears would tingle if you only knew the magnitude. And Lord, when you're silent in our lives, it doesn't mean you're not working. Often you're just preparing. You're just setting the stage for the work you want to do in our lives from this moment on so give us grace lord we thank you for this study we ask you to give us grace to meditate on it and apply the principles into our lives each day we ask all this lord in jesus name amen